We're going now to Ephesians chapter 2 for today. We're going to do most lessons in, the, in this month. We're going to go chapter by chapter. And so we're just going to continue right where Jansen left off. And we're going to go to Ephesians 2 and talk about walking in grace. I'm curious, what is your favorite symphony? I lost some of you, but stay with me. Your favorite symphony. Ricky, hang on a minute. You may not know many by name. But I guarantee if we were to play some of the most well-known and popular symphonies, you would recognize their tune just by how often and prolific they are used. Beethoven's Fifth of all of these four seasons, Holtz the Planet, Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker. But what makes a symphony so special, Ricky knew one of those, what makes those so special is that a symphony is this complex composition of tones and themes with all these variety of instruments molded together in perfect harmony and the emotions and passions that they convey are just hard to express the the, the warmth and depth of meaning that these symphonies are able to produce are something that is just special Ephesians 2 is God's symphony of salvation some of the most profound words in all scripture about God saving man are found in this, is in this chapter. And some of the most passionate, beloved verses that we have in all the word of God are going to be found within these words. The, the chapter opens describing where we were based on our deeds. He says in verse 1, and you were dead and your trespasses and sins. Far from God, deep in sin, chained to addiction, stuck on self. We were far from God, desperate and doomed, as hopeless as could be. But then it changes. The whole tone changes in verse 4. The whole tone shifts as it focuses on where we are based on what God has done. But God, being rich in mercy, with, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. He didn't abandon us to our fate. He didn't leave us to, to, to face our own destruction. God stepped in. God intervened. God reached down, and by his grace and his mercy, where once there was nothing but death, now there is glorious life because of the Son. I left you, you a little note cards there, a little box for you. You may be wondering why that is there. One of my favorite outlines of the book of Ephesians chapter 2 came from my friend and mentor, and co-worker Bill Walton. Bill and I preached for the church in Chattanooga, Tennessee together, and Bill had preached there for 30 years, and there was a lesson he gave, and it stayed with me. In fact, I loved it so much, I wrote it in the back of my Bible, and I cannot tell you how many times I've gone through that outline. It's such a wonderful, simple way of explaining not only this first eight verses of Ephesians chapter 2, but explaining what it means to be saved by grace through faith. And so I want you to draw it with me. It's a little drawing exercise. We're not going to be done here, and this is not the whole lesson because I want us to finish the chapter, but let's just look at what he says about saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 1 through 8. It's all about grace. The whole section here focuses and highlights on God's grace, and of all the ways we could choose to define what grace is, God uses three words in association with grace multiple times in Scripture. It's the words love, kindness, and mercy. They're found in verse 4 and verse 7 of this context. 
They're also found in Titus chapter 3 in association with grace. The love of God, the kindness of God, and the mercy of God. Grace, though, in and of itself, is just an attitude. It's a disposition. I can say gracious words. I can do gracious deeds. But grace is that which is found within the heart. Some of our translations of Colossians 3 and verse 16 will say, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Grace is found in the heart. Well, God didn't just have gracious feelings towards us. It's not just that he had love in his heart towards us and desired kindness towards us and sought in his heart that he wanted mercy for us. God demonstrated that love. God poured forth that mercy. God showed that kindness through the gift of his Son. As Paul would define in Romans 5 and verse 15, the gift by the grace. He demonstrated that grace by giving the answer for our sin, the blood that would forgive those sins and be that atoning sacrifice, that propitiation that John would talk about. He gave his Son to die for us. The demonstration of the love of God to the death of his Son on the cross. But right here in the text, Paul says that we, all the world, are recipients of God's grace through the conditions of faith. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, that it is the gift of God. That is, this amazing gift is offered to all who would have and put their faith in God. But much like grace, faith is that which exists in the heart. Romans 10 verse 9 says that with the mouth we confess and with the heart we believe. And so when we read the word of God and listen to it and believe these words and trust in these words, faith begins, but genuine faith, much like grace, in order for it to be known, it has to be shown, demonstrated. Real faith, authentic faith, James would say, is a working faith. It's an active faith. It's a faith that is willing to put its trust in what the Lord says and do what the Lord says, to follow his commandments. And Scripture teaches when we obey King Jesus and we do what he says, by faith we obey his words, it's at that point we are connected to the blood of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1 says that we are to obey Jesus and be sprinkled by his blood. At what point do we get that saving grace? When by faith we trust in Jesus and obey his words. And the beautiful summary of all of this is what Paul says in Galatians 2 and verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. There's my obedience. Crucify the flesh. I'm living now in Christ. Go on. And the life which I now live, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Another beautiful summary. What more precious and perfect words could we have from what God has given in just these first eight verses? Now, I want for the rest of our time this morning, and if you want this, if you're still riding a thousand miles an hour, you just tell me. I'll send this to you. Don't cramp your hands. I want us to move on for a little bit because I believe most of us are very familiar with Ephesians 2, 1 through 8, and we're not as familiar with verses 9 to 22. And so we're going to finish the chapter, and this is what I want us to look at. What do grace-safe people do? What does it mean to walk in grace? we got our text before us right here in Ephesians 2. We're reading Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you in verse seventeen, you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What do grace-saved people do? What does it mean to walk in grace? Well, first of all, what he says here is that grace-saved people are working people. To walk in grace is to be a working people. We might think that the grace of God would incentivize us not to work, but it's actually quite the opposite. That God's grace is the driving motivator for the people of God to work all the more diligently for his case. In verse 10 it says that we are saved to be a workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's an interesting language in Romans chapter 6 when Paul talked about where we were and where we are. This is what he says in verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you were slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. What do you say? There was a time in our life, in all of our lives, when we used our time and our energy and our mind and our focus on things that were only destructive. We were slaves to sin, but in Jesus we have been freed, and now we are slaves and servants of the King to use that same energy, that same mind, that same devotion, that same focus now directed to Him. Paul said the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation, but it wasn't just that I'm going to free you from your sins. The end result of this grace that has appeared is that we would be his own possession. Look at that language. On fire for good deeds. Someone who desires to do what is good. Think of this just for a moment. Imagine going to the doctor and they give you the, the, the worst news possible. It's terminal. You're not going to live. Get your fear in order. And so you go and you go about getting everything prepared. You get your will prepared. And you say all your goodbyes to your family, preparing for the inevitable end. But then, you're given a cure. You're given a complete cure. What do you do then, after leaving from the result of that cure? Do you binge watch your show on Netflix? 
binge watch the Cowboys from the 1995s? Would you leave from the cure bitter and angry at all the people who have wronged you? Or would you leave using every strength in every moment on the things that matter the most? You were dead, and now you're alive. And so use this life for him, for him. That's my story, and that's your story. I want you to notice in verse 10, though, it's not that he is saying that we just do good deeds. He says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. In other words, I don't get to define what good works are. I don't get to say, you know, I think God would like this and would be pleased with this, and so I'm going to do these good things and think that God would be, would be satisfied with these. God has specific plan for his people. God has a will for his people. God has a work that he wants his people, his church, to do. Well, how are we supposed to know what that is? Well, the word of God equips us, Paul says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What does grace do to God's people? Grace saved people are some of the hardest working servants of God on the planet. They use their now liberated free life for the king. God gave me life. I'm going to use it for him. We're also seeing this section that grace saved people, those walking in grace. They are a unified people. It's interesting in Ephesians 2 is you have two sections that really look the same. There's division and then there's unity. There's separation and then there's brought back together. And so it begins, you were dead and now you're alive in Christ Jesus. And then it starts again in verse 11 and he talks about these Gentiles and he defines, especially notice in verse 12, all the ways he says that they were apart, alienated. He says that they were Christless, that is, they were without the blessings and the knowledge of Christ. He says that they were stateless, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, not a part of the fellowship and the citizenship of God's people, that they were strangers to the covenants of promise, that is, they were friendless, that they didn't know about the promises, they didn't enjoy the blessings of God and the promises of God that he had given to his people, that they enjoyed day by day, that they were hopeless. Even though God had a plan for them, they didn't know of that hope, and so in their minds, there was nothing to look forward to, not even a prayer. And they were, in essence, godless, without God in this world. No knowledge of God, no hope for God in the world. Now look for a moment. He is describing in verse 12 the Gentiles. But that's a pretty good description of where I used to be. Where we used to be. Does that not help us appreciate where we've been and now where we stand? Does this not help us see perhaps our neighbors and our friends in the world and how desperately they need Jesus? Because in verse 13, what he says is, in Jesus, what once was division, what once was hopeless, has now all been saved. He broke down the dividing wall. That that law that stood between the Gentiles and God, Christ fulfilled, he becoming the curse, dying on the cross. So that, look at it again in verse 13, so that now in Jesus, those who are far off are now brought near. And verse 14, those who are now two are brought into one. And verse 15, 
that where there once was hostility, now there is peace. And verse 16, where once there was division in Christ, now there is unity. What is he saying? There once was division because of sin and because of the Gentiles and the Jews and what existed in the law, but today there's just one, one in Christ. Not Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female, any of the ways you could divide it up. We are all one in Christ. Can you imagine? In one sense, he's talking about our relationship with God and how we are one and in a right relationship with him, which is amazing. Amazing to even think about that God would want and desire and allow a relationship between me and him. But he's talking about the relationship we share with each other. Not just that we and God are in fellowship with one another, but we can have fellowship with each other. Have you thought about what that might look like in the first century? Jews and Gentiles? How different would they have been? Different in the way that they thought, different in their backgrounds, different in their, in their diets, different in their traditions, and yet Paul says, now you are one. Do you realize, even without turning your head, all of the differences represented among us here this morning in this building? I wish you could stand where I stand to see it with your eyes. Because right here this morning is a representation of different ethnicities and nationalities and backgrounds and understandings and traditions. And yet we sit here as one. Jesus did that. He broke down division so we could be united in Him. Here's what that means. In verse 19, God is making us into something new together. It's not that we're strangers and aliens. He says we are citizens of His country. We are members of His house. Brethren, the application is quite clear. God has made us into something special, a relationship created in Jesus there are some things demanded because of what we are in Christ. Love is demanded and expected for one another because we are in Christ. Respect for one another is expected and demanded because we are in Christ. Kindness to one another, patience with each other in our short term in our short givings and our mistakes and our long term to, to reach spiritual growth is expected because we are one in Christ. And that grace that we so cling to from verses 1 through 8 is demanded towards one another because we are made something new in Christ. Now, there's one final thought here, and that is that we are a holy people. He ends by talking about how we are being made by the Spirit into a temple, a temple of God, which is such a unique and fascinating thought. The temple building was a representation on earth of God's presence among the people. And when they saw that temple, it was to represent his holiness and his glory, who he was among the people. There's a lot we could say about this. Peter made a really good statement about collectively how each one of us are like living stones building up this temple of God. And a lot could be said. A lot could be said about what this means, about how we should live and what we should keep from, about our influence and our example to make sure that we are extending the glory of God everywhere that we go. But I just want us to see one thing this morning, just one thought. When you notice in verse 21 and 22, I want you to notice what he says. 
He says, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple where? In the Lord. Keep going. In whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of Campbell Road. Ricky Jenkins. We are being built in the Lord. And we are of the Lord. We are God's temple. We are God's people. In verse 10, we are created in Christ Jesus. In verse 19, we are God's household. We are God's people. There are expectations. There are immense blessings. Remembering we belong to him. One thing for our emphasis, notice verse 20. The foundation of God's people is that we stand on Christ and the apostles. Who we are, what we become, and what we build is on that firm foundation. Christ, the prophets, and the apostles. Think of that. Everything that we do, everything that we believe, stems from that firm foundation. Christ, the apostles, and the prophets. Which means it matters what we believe. It matters what we teach. It matters how we live to make sure that we are standing firm on that foundation on which we have been set. Can we agree with that? That it matters what we do, what we believe, and how we live because Christ has set us on this firm foundation. So we need to stay there, to stand firm on that rock. For some of us, in verse 20, some things are really easy to see out of that passage. Built on the foundation of Christ. I like that one. I like that. I like talking about Christ. It's easy to summarize the Gospels and what that means. Jesus and his teaching, Jesus and his example, Jesus and his work. I, I like that. Oh, but the apostles, though, what about that? The apostles gave us the rest of the New Testament, the majority of it. Our foundation is not just the Gospels. Our foundation is the Apostles and Christ. Which means when the Apostles wrote about the church and the worship of the church and the organization of the church and the work of the church and the purpose of the church, that's part of our foundation. When the Apostles wrote about holy living, whether it be about our, our habits and our minds and our attitudes, about marriage and divorce and remarriage, about our harmony with one another, that's part of our foundation. There are some today who want to put point two above point three. Sounds like this. Unity at all costs. Unity even over doctrine. Doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter what you teach. What's most important is just be one. All those differences, all those dividing lines, they don't matter. What really matters is just be one. Unity at all costs. The voice of it sounds something like this. I surmise the pendulum swing is at play. The generation coming out of the 20th century battles have raised kids who want to get back to grace and the Gospels. But the old guard is still on guard. The difference becomes more and more evident. 
And I know in my case, sometimes I just want to be a Christian who can believe and say what I believe without it being an elder room battle. It's written by someone who has great influence. Do you hear what he's saying? The young generation just, just wants grace in the Gospels. Just give me Jesus. I don't want those apostles. Jesus is the only pattern. I just want grace, and I want the Gospels. But that old guard, that generation before us, they're keeping us from being able to have that grace and the focus on those Gospels. That old guard doesn't care for grace. They don't even preach on grace. I've heard that a lot over the last year. That those who went a generation before us never preached on grace. So I spent a little time this week. It's been a little bit since I've been in my office. <laughs> but I was able to go in just for a moment. Some of you may not know what this is, <laughs> which means I don't have to tell you how old it is. D. Bowman, Salvation by Grace. Bob Owen, Salvation by Grace. Sewell Hall, a lesson on grace called Agonizing Over the Prodigal. Ralph Walker, A Study in Gracefulness. Ricky Jenkins, Coming to the Lord, A Study on Grace. David Tomley, Our Loving, Caring Father. Don Truex, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And he focuses on grace. My father wrote this years ago. It's a magazine, which are several articles, and the entire focus is all on grace. From men such as Bob Dickey and Colley Caldwell and Gary Henry and Harry Pickup Jr. and L.A. Stouffer and Jeff Smeltzer, lessons and articles such as the road back home, coming home to stay, why it's hard to extend grace, the love of the Father, and I will say to him, my grandfather used to take sermon notes on these old computer cards, and this one dates back to 1972, and all it talks about is grace, the unmerited gift of God. When I was in Tennessee, I was able to spend time with a brother I had great respect for. His name was Max Stevens, who preached for years in that area for many, many churches, responsible for many of them beginning. And I asked Mac, I said, do you have a sermon just for me that I could take home? I just want to remember you by. And he reached on the table and handed me what he was writing. And what is the sermon but a sermon of God's grace? 
I looked last night on the Benchley website, and on just the first page, when I typed in grace, our brother Jess has preached over nine sermons on just the first page within the last decade on grace. And my favorite, though not the entire focus, but certainly the lifeblood of his lesson, was a doorkeeper in the house of God. I'd rather stand in the door than to live in the worth. It's easy to look back over things that have taken place unfairly and critically. To look at the battles from a generation before us. And not understand that what they did, they did because they sought for the truth. To stand for the truth. Were there some who engaged in the battles of the 50s and 60s and did so without the Spirit of Christ? Yes. But there were many who did. There were many who stood for the truth because it mattered. There were many who taught the truth because it mattered. There were many who did, as Jude says, contended for the truth because it matters. When someone today wants to preach on authority or commandments or following the will of God, it doesn't mean that they don't care about God's grace or that they're setting aside God's grace. It's the complete opposite. It is people who understand the depth of the gift of God's grace. It is people who understand what it is that God gave to us and beyond all things, notice, want to be pleasing to Him. I'm trying to learn, Paul said, what is pleasing to the Lord. We have as our aim, our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Even that passage, notice all Scripture being breathed out by God, not just the red words. Those blessed words of the prophets are tutored to Christ. The rest of the New Testament, the powerful words of the apostles that show us who we are as a body of believers and the red words of Christ, of course. All Scripture, equip us to every good work. But I want you to notice the companion passage in Hebrews and notice the similarities. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in everything to do his will well, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you notice God is seeking to equip us to every good work, but it's not my good work. It's not what I get to define what is good and I get to define what is in the parameters of grace. It is his will to do his will, working what is pleasing to him, because at the end of the day, it's not about my glory or my praise or my name but it's all about the glory of the God who saved me. That's what this is about. Have you ever noticed how this passage here, Colossians 3, verses 17, is a harmony of what we're talking about? When he says, giving thanks through him to God the Father, only those who are saved by God's grace have that access to that Father. Those who have access to the Father, with grateful hearts coming to him, are those who do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Saved people seek to do God's will. Grace-saved people are careful to make sure that they are continuing to honor that grace and to honor that blood by following the commandments of God. 
anyone who uses the label of grace and says you don't need to worry about the words of the apostles, the pattern in the New Testament, the sound doctrine that we have is not preaching the grace of this word. Before we cast stones at a generation that came before us, let's appreciate where they stood. And let's appreciate where Christ has set us to stand. Our foundation is Christ, the prophets, and the apostles. And there alone we will stand. What we do, what we build, and what we become must stem from there. The hub of symphonies in classical music was Vienna. Anyone who wanted to be anything went to Vienna. I don't know if George Strait ever made it to Vienna. There's a man who went to Vienna because an emperor had decided that he wanted to have his own orchestra. An own orchestra that he would allow to live in his palace. He would pay their own salary. Anyone who was anyone desired to be in that orchestra. And so there was a man who made his way in who couldn't play an instrument. Never even learned. Couldn't even read music. The way he got in was that he bought a very expensive flute. And then he conned his way in. And any time the orchestra would play, he'd lift his flute and pretend to move his fingers, but he himself never actually knew how to play. And everything was great, and he enjoyed the benefits of being a part of that orchestra until the day the emperor decided he wanted a solo performance from every single member. And it wasn't that it was just a request, it was a demand, because those who refused to play before the emperor would be cast immediately into prison. And so when his day came, he called in sick. And then when it came around again, he had a disaster that he couldn't, he couldn't avoid. Excuse after excuse he gave to the emperor until finally the emperor was fed up and said, Listen, you're going to play for me tomorrow or you're going, going, going straight to the dungeon. And that night, that man took his life. It is from that story we have the phrase that we use quite often, Face the music. And sometimes we need to face the music to deal with the reality, to face the truth. Let me ask you a question this morning. When you face the music of Ephesians chapter 2, what do you see? All of us this morning are somewhere in this chapter. It could be that I am far from God because I have never obeyed his gospel. I'm those first three verses that I'm far from God I'm living a life that I know is not pleasing to him, and I'm desperate in the need of his salvation. It could be now, having looked at the end of the chapter, that maybe I'm on the other side of it, that I've been saved by his grace, but I've stepped off that foundation, and I'm building my own temple to my own name and to my own glory. The call today is for each one of us here. Come to the grace of God. Seek his grace. That if you've not obeyed the gospel, today is the day. That if you would believe in Jesus as the Son of God and confess him as such, to turn from your sin and to put him on in baptism, you today would be saved by that amazing grace. That promise is for you. That salvation is for you. That guarantee of freedom and life in Jesus and confidence of living heaven-bound is for you. And if I've wandered from God's path, if I've allowed the words of men and my own pride to get in the way, then today, even while we're singing this song, it's going to be a great time for me to make amends with my God 
to humbly ask his forgiveness. And then from here, I'm leaving following, building only on the foundation that he has set. If we can help you with that, if we can pray for it with you, if we can talk with you or study with you, this call today is for you. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.